0: podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, March 7, 2008. I'm Leslie Taylor. This roundtable discussion at the Philip Center was designed as a dialogue between representatives of mind science, psychoanalysts, and brain science, neuroscientists. The experts discussed learning, memory, and the effect of the environment on brain activity and microanatomy. The speakers, in the order they appear, are Edward Naccachean, co-director of the Philoctete Center and clinical professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College; Pierre Magistretti, professor of neuroscience and co-director of the Brain Mind Institute of the Ecole Polytechnique Federale in Lausanne; François Ensminger a psychoanalyst and head of the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at the University of Geneva, Christina Alberini, Associate Professor of Neuroscience, Psychiatry, and Structural and Chemical Biology at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, Daniel Schechter, Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychiatry and Pediatrics at the Columbia University Medical Center, and Donald Pfaff. Professor and head of the Laboratory of Neurobiology and Behavior at the Rockefeller University.
1: Once upon a time, in the late 19th century, uh, which is uh, to be precise 112 years ago, uh, Freud decided to write a monograph for um, neurologists, a psychology for neurologists which means he tried to use the neurology or the neuroanatomy of late 19th century to explain how memory worked, how ideas worked, how perception worked. He spent uh, somewhere about around seven or eight months on this, and his mood during the period went up and down. Sometimes he felt very happy because he thought he was doing something, and sometimes he felt very desperate and despondent feeling that he was failing at the end of this he just put some of the material, he sent some of the material off to his friend, put some of it in the drawer and forgot about it and the work was not published until 1950 under the name Project for a Scientific Psychology the aim was to see how you could explain mental phenomena through uh, neurophysiology and neuroanatomy this effort continued on and off, uh, usually off, from that period on, until the more recent past for the last 20, 25 years, when it became much more possible, because of uh, the advances in neuroscience, to start again thinking in terms of finding a way to explain certain uh, mental phenomena in neuroscientific terms.
2: Uh, The biology of emotions. I mean, the the basic fact is the following. If we take a very simple emotion like fear, for example, well, you will not only, uh, let's say you see uh, when you go out here later and you go in a little street. I don't know if there are little streets in New York, but anyway. (laughs) In a little back alley somewhere and you see a shadow coming uh, towards you, you're going to be scared. And so you uh, will have uh, a perception. But uh, accompanying that perception, you will have a number of uh, um, manifestations, bodily manifestations. You'll have your heart rate uh, go faster. You'll have, uh, maybe you'll be sweating, uh, a number of, 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 you'll have some, some feelings in your stomach or in your belly. So... Uh, something that something somatic that accompanies your perception. Now James and, and, and Lange, another uh, I think it was Danish, uh, came up with this theory of emotions that, in fact, uh, you are afraid because ch- the changes in the somatic state. So, uh, which, which some seems counterintuitive, at least. You know, when I teach this to medical students, they well, no, it's not really true. I actually am afraid, and that will trigger a somatic response. But so, uh, James had this idea that, uh, in fact, uh, th- there is this sequence, uh, the, the somatic state. The perception, per se, is relatively neutral uh, in terms of emotion. If you had a computer in a way which could uh, recognize shapes, Because the computer does not have a body, it would not be afraid, probably. You need a body to uh, have uh, emotions. And uh, so the idea uh, is that there must be, of course, systems that uh, allow to connect somehow the perception with a somatic and and, and trigger a somatic response, but also you need a, um, uh, a system that will read. Uh, your somatic uh, state and bring it to to the brain, somewhere in the brain, and now there there is some evidence, at least of some of the pathways, and by bringing together uh, the perception and the somatic state, you create uh, the emotion. Now, there is another theory, uh, Cannon and Bard, uh, who have the opposite one, I mean, had in the earlier 20th century, they said, no, 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 they said no. Actually, you are afraid. You re- there is some construct there that tells you this is dangerous, and you have the somatic response. So, actually, uh, this is still taught in the physiology textbooks, the Canon and Bard versus the James and Lange theory. So, actually, it's not really a completely resolved issue. Now, it seems to me that the pendulum now is, and, and Damasio, of course, was a promoter of this, bring is back to, to, to James and Lange. Now, see this. Uh, First step. Then, uh, I, don't know, I don't want to be too long, but just uh, to bring it to Damasio, he, uh, his idea is that we also have the capacity of anticipating a somatic state in which we will be if we make this, take decision A or decision B. Let's say you have to uh, announce a bad news to someone. You can just you imagine saying, OK, I'm going to go to this person and tell him, you know, this person, this friend of yours is dead. It's going to be difficult, you feel very uncomfortable saying this, and then you have another possibility, you write down on a piece of paper and put it in the mailbox, and then you can go away. And maybe, it, depending on who, the kind of person you are, maybe you prefer to do this. Now, uh, the, uh, the idea of Damasio is that uh, you can anticipate the somatic state in which you will be if you do A or B, and you will tend to choose the situation that puts... that you feel in a less uncomfortable state and and take this decision. So the idea is that decisions have a strong bodily component and we have the capacity to anticipate the somatic state in which we will be depending on. And and so that's, uh, I think, you know, uh, these are interesting positions which I think they they deserve uh, discussions. Uh, But clearly uh, this idea of an emotion being linked to a somatic state and in fact, being the, 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 the trigger for the somatic state being really the key factor in the emotions goes back to William James. I really think that the uh, psychoanalytical framework posed by Freud, uh, which uh, as doesn't have much, despite his efforts in the project, a strong biological uh, underpinning, I still think that it is a very rich and very... Um, fertile context uh, to which to think today in neurobiological terms. So, if the fact that that, that uh, James has said something also not really based on biology, I mean, he you know he could he has this example. He says, well, if think of, of, of um, when you are upset, when you're really um, angry, and and think that now you take away all the bodily. Uh, manifestation of anger. So you you you're not red in your face. You don't have your heart beat. He, he says, and maybe you can try. Uh, he says you are not. You cannot imagine anger if you m- remove all these uh, bodily states in your uh, anticipation. So maybe uh, you know the fact that uh, I don't see a problem that James said this without much biological evidence. And maybe the way the, the re, uh, uh, way uh, I mean the fact that today we may find some biological underpinnings for this uh, may be of interest. Uh, I I don't think it's the whole story, but for example for this to exist, for the fact that a perception can trigger a somatic response and that the somatic response can be detected by the brain of course, it would be important to know are there circuits that could mediate this in, terms, in neurobiological terms. So may, it may not be the whole story, but there, there is a, 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 certainly a, one of the systems is the system that involves the amygdala, where, which receives basically all sensory modalities and then projects towards neuroendocrine and, neuro, uh, and autonomic nervous system nuclei, which will change the state of your body. And work by Bud Craig in recent years has uh, demonstrated the existence of a, what he called the interoceptive system, which brings back information from the viscera back to uh, the thalamus, like, which is a sensory gateway, if you wish, and then to some parts of the sensory cortex, the insula in particular, and then further in the anterior cingulate. So, at least there is, there seem to be circuits that could, one, connect perception with body states and the system that would inform the brain about a body state. Now, if that's the whole story, I don't know. But at least there is some biological basis for what James had into it.
3: I, I will try to, to say something in my French-English <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, to, to, I, We returned 120 years ago <laughs> uh, with the project of Freud and I think that the aim of Freud was creating a global theory of the mind, of, of the brain it's, it's very difficult perspective to do that and there are some even people, today. Even today. And there are some people who are trying to do that, like Edelman and others, to, to put to all data together to, to give a, a new incidents for for orienting research also. And I think for me, as a psychoanalyst, the question of the link, the relationship between representation and somatic state is a very important question. And this question is very actual. You you, you can say, we we are saying in our book that the the trace, the trace lived by the experience through the phenomena of plasticity. The plasticity, it means that the Experience leaves a trace in the neuronal network, uh, a concrete trace, a structural and functional trace. And the fact that the trace is linked to a somatic state is a very important question also in psychoanalysis through the theory of drive. The drive is something, the, the way by Freud for thinking the relationship between the body and the mind. And we can say that the child, and perhaps uh, you can say more than I, Dan Shekter, mm-hmm. about the state of distress of the little child of, of the infant helplessness hilflosigkeit freud was saying speaking about hilflosigkeit helplessness state of distress of the child the idea is that the child in the beginning of his life is unable to discharge by himself the inner excitement of his own body if there is potentially uh, destructive forces in the living matter And you have to discharge this destructive energy, this inner excitement. And the action of the other, concrete action of the other, is is necessary to discharge the excitement and leaves a trace. So the trace has a function of homeostatic function, a function of equilibration of the living matter, the inner excitement. (laughs) and for me it's a very central point in the theory of psychoanalysis. The trace is not only the inscription of the experience, the trace has a living function for the psychic life of the child. We can say (coughs) about the the deprived children in in a situation with anonymous care, uh, and that these <laughs> are unable to organize themselves, not because they are destroyed by the environment, but because they are destroyed by their own excitement. So, in the theory of Freud, you have in the first moment of the psyche a link between the somatic state and the trace. The somatic state in terms of pleasure or displeasure.
4: Nobody has seen the trace yet. However, <laughs> Uh, there are many um, many data um, leading to the conclusion that there is a um, modification, a physical modification in the brain that corresponds to the experience. And this modification can be long-lasting, for example, in the long-term memories. Uh, however, it's not fixed even though it's long-lasting. So in this process of becoming long term uh, the trace is not fixated it's constantly changing so uh, in this dynamic process in which the trace is maintained resides the information that is memory now although physically we don't have a way to identify the trace we certainly are close to the point to be able to so we definitely try in neuroscience to identify markers that are linked, associated with this trace, Uh, and hopefully in the very near future we'll be able to do so. And there are many ways to do that. It can be retrophysiological, it can be molecular uh, markers that are associated with this trace, and uh, hopefully that will help to address many questions about what's happening to the trace, and how is that linked to the emotional state, and how is that linked to the somatic state. And how is that changed?
2: I think it's a fundamental distinction. Even the, the the two processes are somehow connected at some point. But between development and the process of becoming. And uh, development, uh, if one puts this to uh, the uh, the extreme of the spectrum, would be a some sort of pre-programmed. Uh, Set of uh, mechanisms, events that that bring about the development of an or, of an organism, mm-hmm. and the process of becoming is something that is much more linked to contingency, to uh, experience. Now there is of course an interplay because, particularly in the early stages of life, development is still. Going on, so the pre-programmed, I mean, uh, synaptogenesis uh, goes on after birth and and so on. So there are what one could call pre-programmed mechanisms, but at the same time there is the exposure to the other, to the contingency, which is is not determined really. It's uh, it's just contingency, and and it's I think essential in. the the, the emergence of individuality. So, uh, well, it goes back to the, it's another way, it's maybe a complex way to say uh, nature and nurture, if you wish. But it's a little more subtle, I think, than, than nature and nurture. It's development versus the process of becoming, the emergence of individuality.
3: Yes, and we can say that the process of becoming introduced to the question of the continuity or discontinuity in the becoming, in the development of the child, and one part you have all the reason of a continuity, a lot of determinate determinations, and that you will follow a line of development. In the other part. Through plasticity and through other phenomena like reconsolidation, you, you have the opening to new traces, that traces will be associated with other traces. And we are working with Pierre about the paradox of plasticity. For, for, if you are thinking to the plasticity, the fact that experience leaves a trace in the neuronal network, it is the idea of continuity, of determinism. But in fact, after that trace may be associated with other traces, creating new traces, which will be new stimuli for the becoming brain and for the becoming child. And so you can say that the association between traces will separate from the early traces, creating a discontinuity. And that is a really interesting paradox, because you have, in the same concept, in the same data of plasticity, you can have two interpretations, and we can discuss about that. One interpretation in terms of continuity, the idea of plasticity. You have an event in your early life, and it will leave a trace for the life for, forever in the neuronal network plasticity, but also plasticity is the fact that the trace may be associated with other traces, so creating a discontinuity, and this introduced to a paradoxal definition of memory. If we can say plasticity is a biological theory of memory in the neuronal level, you can say that memory is a continuity, but memory also is a discontinuity. And I think we are today in the movement of creating new, a new conception of memory uh, of, in terms of continuity of discontinuity. And not only of memory, but of mind process, of creativity. Perhaps creativity is the effect of discontinuity and not of continuity of the speech-like cutting and not the speech in the sense of meaning.
4: Perhaps if I can here, I probably should uh, give some information about what's going on in neuroscience now and trying to understand uh, the biological basis of the memory process in terms of memory establishment which is called the formation of memory, that is called consolidation. When we learn something new uh, and that memory is important, sufficiently important to be kept, then it's going to become long-term memory. And the process, the underlying process that makes the new information into a long-term memory is called consolidation, memory consolidation. Um, And it was believed until very recently that once memories are consolidated, if they are very important and very strong and long-lasting, uh, they will be there forever, or at least for a long, long time, in that state. Once they are consolidated, they are there. They are, they are sort of fixed. Uh, and more recently, through rediscoveries of um, studies, actually of results that have been seen in the 60s, many, many years ago, but now in a more clear way, it has been shown uh, that that's not true. When we have established memory, consolidated memories, and we recall them, those memories become fragile again, labile again, for a certain amount of time, for a certain period of time. And in that period of time, we can change those memories. We can disrupt them if we interfere in some way, pharmacologically or other ways, uh, or we can make new associations to those memories. If we make new associations, those memories will remain in a certain way. However, they will be now associated to something new. And it's actually, uh, this is what goes on every time we recall something, every time we recall a memory that memory is now recalled in a new context, in a new time, in a different time and experience. And so it's going obviously going to change because it's going to be associated with something new uh, and it's going to be updated to whatever all our experiences have been. And this is what obviously is going on through development, but also through the therapeutic um, approaches. The, sec- the process through which the recalled, retrieved memory, through which this memory is going to be maintained, is going to become stabilized again, is called reconsolidation. For
3: me, the reconsolidation, excuse me, but the reconsolidation and also the plasticity are really central biological uh, data for discussing the question of psychoanalysis and the efficacy of psychoanalysis. Because we are now in a point very important point, I think, in the discussion that we have with Pierre and with Christina Albini also, because it's not a question of using neurosciences to prove psychoanalysis process, but it's a point of encounter between two different fields with a common question, it it is our method, Uh, it's why I'm not a neuroscientist, really, not at all, and I am a psychoanalyst and clinician, and Pierre is a neuroscientist, and we are working in our book, Biology Freedom, it is like a method of thinking without, in two fields, without coming measure, Not the idea of superposition, of analogy, but to conserve two different perspectives with a common question. And the common question, the question of the trace, lived by the experience, but also the question of the continuity and discontinuity in the beginning.
5: Um, To go back to Darwin, certain memories we need for survival, so that, for example, the phobia of a snake... um, or a very traumatic experience creates a somatic state through the amygdala and the limbic system. And the problem we have often in psychoanalysis is that the psychoanalysis does not um, reconsolidate that memory necessarily at the limbic level because whenever that person has something to reinforce that experience, they, it's triggering their traumatic um Somatic states, and they may not be able to exercise the frontal areas of their brain that would help calm them down, contextualize things, as well as parts of their limbic system like their hippocampus. So in our research, when we have mothers who have post-traumatic stress, who have experienced violence, and they watch their um, toddlers having a helpless or distressed state on the video in the MRI scanner, they don't show the um, prefrontal areas activated as women who don't have post-traumatic stress do. And I think that one of the roles we need to understand, how does psychoanalysis work? It's, it, my suspicion is that it's really contributing to the frontal top-down control and meaning-making of some of these um, limbic um, and somatic memories that may not change so much because they're survival-related.
4: Uh, What we know, mostly experimentally, and what we look at is uh, these very long-lasting memories that are memories based on fear or displeasure, uh, because they're very long-lasting, in fact. And uh, so that can be, in a way, um, uh, a representation of a problem that is in an individual that goes to therapy and wants to now create new associations, get rid of that problem, and through creating new association.
6: Of course, the neuroscientist goes to work every day uh, with the faith that our behavior is completely determined by physical reactions and chemical reactions. And having said that, I can give uh, two warnings to this, to this uh, fictitious neuroscientist. The first, that e- even though uh, we proceed with the faith, that behavior is completely determined by physical reactions, it could be that certain top-down influences that you guys are expert in are so complex that even though they are determined by micro-reactions among chemicals, they're not best described that way. And so I can give a a scientific analogy between thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. Statistical mechanics, late 19th century, Mm -hmm. Uh, statistical mechanics dealing with every little molecule, thermodynamics with the properties of the whole, even though the force of science is reductionistic and we know that the statistical mechanics wins the day, nobody is going to disobey the, the three laws of thermodynamics, and, and it could be that we'll face an analogous situation in the next 50 years. The second warning is what, one that I heard at MIT by a neuroscientist named Donald Mackay, and he said even though your behavior is determined per- perfectly and completely, You don't have to believe that it is, because as soon as I tell you, I I, I see you in a certain state. We're finite state automata. I see you in a certain state, and as soon as I tell you that I've got you determined, you're in a different state. (laughs) And I'm not sure which state you're in. So even if we are determined, we don't have to think about
3: it. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org.